0: All right, if you want to find James chapter 2 this morning, James chapter number 2, and then also uh, we'll be in chapter 16 of the Confession, paragraph 2. So James 2, and then also chapter 16 of Good Works, paragraph 2. I want to begin by looking at the text in James 2, and we're going to read uh, an extended portion of this chapter, not the entirety of it, but we're going to begin in verse 14 and read down through verse number 26. The Bible tells us, beginning there in verse 14, what doth it profit, my brethren, though a man say he have faith and have not works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, and notwithstanding you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? Even so, faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. Yea, a man may say, Thou hast faith, and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works, and I will show thee my faith by my works. Thou believest that there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. But wilt thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar? Seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect? And the scripture was fulfilled, which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see then how that by works a man is justified, and not by faith only. Likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works, when she had received the messengers and had sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also." So this morning, we're going to deal with this principle of uh, dealing with the nature of works, the nature of good works. What, what do these works look like? How do they manifest themselves? Uh, what, is, what qualifies as a good work? Now that's the paragraph we're going to be dealing with this morning in the confession itself, and instead of reading through it all at one time, I'm going to pull these phrases out, but if you have your confession there, you'll notice there are a lot of scripture footnotes to this particular paragraph, and we're going to cover uh, a lot of those this morning really in just a... Uh, looking at the phrase and then looking at the scripture that backs that up. Uh, When we think about the role or the nature of works, what kind of role should they play in our life? I think we all agree that good works are certainly important in the life of a believer. Uh, This passage in James gives us a great insight as to how we can be mistaken Uh, in what we think good works are, and we can also be mistaken in what we think good works produce. And so it's important to note that in James, especially there in verses 18 through 22, uh, the declaration that the text is making there is there is an insistence that good works are the fruits and evidence of true faith. Uh, they They are not what gains it or earns it, but they are the fruits or the evidence that I have faith. So if these good works are actually appearing in my life, if these good works are actually being shown and demonstrated, it's not because I'm somehow earning that salvation, uh, but that is the fruit or the evidence that I certainly already have faith. So you'll notice that that's the very first line of that paragraph. These good works done in obedience to God's commandments are the fruits and evidences of a true and lively faith. And so that's what we see, that it is a living faith. not a faith that is dead. Uh, It is not, there is no such thing in in a real living uh, faith of a believer. There's no such thing as dead works. Uh, Works are not dead because it is from a living faith. And so that's, that is what the intent here of the uh, paragraph is. And of course, the intent of what James uh, chapter 2 also teaches us. Uh, so we know that good works um, are the fruits and the evidence of true faith. Uh, they are also not the basis of salvation, but the result and evidence of salvation. So again, we're looking at the reality that these are uh, the evidence Uh, These are the uh, signs. These are the things that are seen because salvation is already there uh, and because there is already faith. It is the evidence of salvation is what these good works are. Uh, That's the nature of them. That's what tells us exactly what they are and how we should look at them. You'll notice as James was writing, this is one of those passages that uh, really to, to see the entirety of everything uh, that is being said here, uh, really that verses from 14 to 26, the argument really is about what is genuine faith. Uh, how is genuine faith manifested? How do I see it? How would I recognize it? Um, how would I know? Uh, it, it talks about the man who says, I have faith, but he has not works. Uh, so a, a man may profess all he wants that he has faith. Uh, that does not make it so. Um, we we have, uh, over the years, put a lot of stock in what a man says. Uh, we've put a lot of stock in a profession of faith, and we say a profession of faith must equal salvation. Uh, a profession of faith can be just that. I can profess faith and not have a living faith at all. I can possess a, a, a testimony of faith, but not have a living faith, not really have a faith uh, that is the evidence uh, that demonstrates good works. So James is, is using illustrations here of the evidence and the demonstrations of these particular faith. And he's really giving us uh, these, uh, these, these warnings to people who claim to believe. If, if I claim belief, if I claim faith, uh, if I have a profession of faith, then for that faith to be living and that faith to be active, I will have works together with that faith. I will not just have a faith that is just a profession of faith. Uh, It's it's become a Christian cliche. Uh, We ask the question, have you made a profession of faith? Well, that's not really the answer. That's not really the question. The question of our salvation is not, have you made a profession of faith? Uh, All religions make a profession of faith. They claim to profess whatever it is that they are following. So just because I say I make a profession of faith does not mean I possess true, active, living faith. So merely just coming to the place where we say, uh, this is what I have. And it it is a powerful statement that's given there uh, at the end of verse 19. He says, thou believest that there is one God. Now look at this. Uh, You can believe that there is one God and you do well. uh, But the devils believe that there's one God. And notice their response. They tremble. So this is not just a I believe in one God, uh, this, this notion that if I just believe in God, uh, that I somehow can say I have evidence of a active, living, uh, saving faith. And so it's a very important concept that is being dealt with here. He uses the example of Abraham, our father, being justified by works. Now, uh, that's the the word that's being used here. If you read it very quickly, you begin to get the idea that he's saying, oh, that that's how he was declared righteous. Uh, No, what he's actually had. By asking that question, he is saying he has demonstrated his righteousness. When, when, when Abraham took Isaac and offered him upon that altar, he was demonstrating that he already had the righteousness not to gain righteousness. If I teach that the, the reason Abraham had faith or the reason that he was quote-unquote converted is because he did what he did with Isaac by offering to sacrifice him, I've missed the point. The reason Abraham went to that altar The reason he confidently took his one and only son. And by the way, remember how difficult that would have been. That was the promised son that took many, many years to come to fruition. And remember, in the time when Sarah and Abraham waited, uh, they got impatient, didn't they? And they decided, let's take matters into our own hands. And Hagar was sent into Abraham. And instead of waiting on Isaac, Ishmael was born. And of course, we know today that that that, uh, decision to go against God has led to even the conflicts in which we have today. Uh, Middle Eastern conflict is based upon the seeds of Isaac and the seeds of Ishmael. Uh, And so, uh, but Isaac was the one and only son. And you remember that he was told to offer him upon that altar. Uh, So he demonstrated. And so he says in verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with his works and by works his faith was made perfect. So God commanded, he commanded that sacrifice in order to test uh, Abraham. So we have this, these principles here, and, and, and again, to verse 24, you see then how that by works a man is justified and not by his faith only, or again, how it, by works a man's faith is demonstrated, how it is, it is uh, counted to him as being that which is active. So, the distinction here is what really is the difference between the pure gospel and a false, man centered, free will only gospel, right? So, you have the difference here between what's the pure gospel? Now, the pure gospel is going to always include that there is going to be living, active evidence, fruits that will manifest themselves in the life of the believer. Now, how does that enter into the free will idea? Because we often, like we learned last week in the first paragraph, we get what these good works are. We often get it wrong. Uh, We begin to think that this is a good work, this is a good work, and this is a good work. And what we're going to learn a little bit today is that these good works are often not what we identify them to be. And sometimes we believe that what we're doing uh, is actually a good work. And in reality, uh, it is something that we believe is earning us or gaining us some type of favor with God. And so we understand that these good works are going to demonstrate they're going to come out as a result of something. Now, notice what it says. It says, and by them, believers manifest their thankfulness strengthen their assurance, edify their brethren, adorn the profession of the gospel, stop the mouths of the adversaries, and glorify God. Now, really, that's the nature of what good works are. You notice, and I'm not trying to be a smart aleck this morning, but you notice that the good works are not spelled out in the idea of a certain job that a person might do in the church. Like, it doesn't say a good work is uh, uh, cleaning. Again, every church building needs it, right? Or uh, supplying. Um, But what it does say is that it contains all of these ideas. Thankfulness strengthens our assurance. Think about the reality of our good works ought to strengthen our assurance in Jesus Christ. So this is the purity. This is the purity that we are wanting to be critically concerned about. So these good works are absolutely critical and important to show that someone's faith is genuine. That's the idea. Faith without works is dead. Just like he gives the illustration. For as the body without the spirit is dead. What does he mean? If there's the spirit, even in the physical realm, if the spirit leaves the body, that body, that, that shell is dead. But even on the spiritual side, Without the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we are dead in our trespasses and sins, and our faith is also dead. If a man or a woman says, I have faith, but they do not have the Holy Spirit, do they truly have a saving faith? No, no matter how many good works they have, because the Spirit's presence is that assurance that we know we are in the family of God. It's one of the assurances that the Bible does teach us. So we're gonna talk about these in, in just a moment. We'll come back to that. So really, let's, let's kind of outline this before we go any further, what we've kind of already said. So the nature of these good works is, is paragraph two teaches us that good works are not the basis of salvation, but the result and evidence of salvation. So that, that really gives us um, the, the key distinction between the two. Good works are absolutely critical and important to show that someone's faith is genuine. Now, where the disagreements are going to come in is when man tries to argue with what is a good work and how do you define it? The church has tried to figure this out for years and sadly, the churches have often gotten into this role of determining, well, here's what we say is a good work. Now, we're gonna deal with a concept here in this paragraph in just a moment that really will get us, really will get us thinking about what's, what's going on here. So, but what we do notice is that when we explain this, is that the teaching of the paragraph and the scripture is stated in James 2.18, faith without works is dead. So there's really three things we're looking at primarily today. The good works are the fruit and evidence of a true and living faith. Number two, good works bring many blessings to believers. And thirdly, good works are God-centered acts, or we could say it without doing any uh, disservice to that statement by saying they're Christ-centered acts. Uh, and I would I'll give you a kind of a preview. Uh, this is part of the works that God creates in us. Uh, this, is, this is not us going around looking for good works and trying to find a way to do a good work. God creates the good works within us. And that's what we'll look at when we get to uh, one of these particular passages that states just that. So the good works of believers have their origin in Christ Jesus and are prepared by God for them, Ephesians 2.10. Christians cannot boast of their good works as they are from God. Uh, So our good works, and that's kind of where we're going with this today. So so let's look at these in in greater detail. Um, so the, the fruit and the evidence of a true and lively faith, uh, what kind of things do we see? Well, back to that phrase, uh, there's a demonstration of thankfulness. Uh, Psalm 116, verses, 11, or verses 12 and 13. Psalm 116, uh, verses 12 and 13. Again, we're, we are now showing these demonstrations of the fruit and the evidence of these things. Psalms 116, 12, and 13. What, what shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits towards me? I will take the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows into the Lord, unto the Lord now in the presence of all thy people. Uh, this is a great demonstration of thankfulness. Now, we don't often think about works and thankfulness. Uh, Remember, we're always busy to and fro saying, good works are something that I do. They're something that I I have to actively use my hands to do. Uh, A demonstration of a good work is it produces thankfulness in you. If you If you have a profession of faith and you're not thankful to God for all the benefits he's rendered unto you, you already know there's a problem with your faith. And now we, we might take that for granted today because we would say, well, isn't that obvious? Now, there are millions of people who have a profession of faith who have no thankfulness towards God. They, they, have just, they just have a profession, but they have no evidence of these things. So thankfulness is one of the things that is demonstrated uh, in Luke chapter number seven. And let's go over to verse 36. Luke seven, verse 36 I'm sure we will not get through all of these today, but that is certainly fine. We'll uh, carry it over to next week. And this is the the story of the forgiveness that uh, Jesus extends to a woman who has come uh, to show a great thankfulness to her Lord. Verse 37 of Luke 6 says, And behold, or Luke 7, I'm sorry, Luke And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee, which had bidden him, saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most. And he said unto him, thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, seest thou this woman? And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. Uh, We notice and see that there is a thankfulness. There is a a worship. uh, There is a desire to anoint uh, the Savior. And so we see that there is this direct connection between uh, what the Savior has done for us and our thanksgiving. Uh, Back in that paragraph, that next phrase deals with uh, strengthen their assurance. So let's look at a couple of passages that deals with how these things strengthen our assurance. Uh, many of these are the footnotes we're going through. So depending on what copy of the confession you have uh, you might have these footnoted very clearly. Some copies of the confession don't actually footnote them; they just put all the verses being referenced. But this, this is the, 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 the strip, scripture rather that deals with This strengthening the believer's assurance. 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11. Again, of all the things that, as I have uh, been in, we'll call ministry, um, I probably have more conversations about the assurance of salvation more than any other conversation. Now, sometimes people don't come right out and say, I lack assurance. But what they say by their words is that they connect, I'm not doing enough things. And I feel as if other people are doing much more than I'm doing. Now assurance, again, is not based upon anything that we do. Your assurance is not based upon what you do or do not do. Now there will be the outflow of those things but 2 Peter 1, verses 5 through 11, uh, there is this, this principle here. And Peter, of course, is talking about the things that are um, added uh, to our faith. So he is not talking about, here's how you come to saving faith. Uh, because Peter begins the letter, second, the second epistle, by saying, Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, to them that have obtained like precious faith with us, Through the righteousness of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. I love that beginning of a letter because Peter lays it out. He says, listen, if you have obtained like precious faith, here's how you obtained it. Through the righteousness of God, through the Savior, Jesus Christ, period. Nothing that you did, nothing that you will do, has obtained this faith. However, he does say, as he reads as we go on, He talks about what he has given us. Look at verse 3. According as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Good works are evidence of godliness. They are evidence of faith. But now notice what he says. He says, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in the present truth. So there are these evidences, these certainties. Again, notice these things make reference to brotherly kindness. They make reference to charity. Uh, They make reference to virtue and to knowledge. Do you see where the danger can come in, that instead of focusing on these God-created things in us, We can get focused on the busyness. We can get focused on the busy work. We can lose sight of the fact that God would much rather us show brotherly kindness than to do a work that seemingly is seen by all men. Or that someone acknowledges, boy, you're really doing a good work for that church body. What if we actually demonstrated these works? What would happen in a church where you actually had temperance and patience and godliness and charity You had these things actually occurring, and that was what people's good works were. When when you have these things being generated in you as a result of what God has done for you, you are not running to and fro trying to find ways to do good works. They are the natural evidence and manifestation of what's taken place in you. And so there's an assurance of what's happened here. Uh, 1 John 2, 3. 1 John 2, 3, and again, anytime we go to these passages, it's difficult to not expound them fully, but uh, we see the, the overriding uh, principles here. 1 John 2, verses, let's read 3 through 5. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. This is a passage that deals exclusively with the assurance of salvation. And this assurance of salvation uh, clearly demonstrates that there is a knowledge of God. There is a knowledge of who he is. There is a desire to actually be in obedience to God and be in obedience to his word. So people that are struggling with assurance, it comes down many times to simply not taking God at his word of what he has said. Your assurance ought to be strengthened as you go. Uh, You should be more certain of your salvation uh, as the days go by. Uh, You should not be going the other direction. Uh, You should be strengthened by the things that are happening. And then notice this, these good works, they edify the brethren. Uh, They ought to encourage other people. Um, Our good works are to edify the brotherhood. They are to edify other brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, Sadly, sometimes our good works are wrongly geared to our own satisfaction. We say in our own mind, look what I've done. Look what I'm doing, God. Instead of our good works, if they're truly the evidence of saving faith, those good works are going to edify other believers. If you have a faith that is just edifying you personally, those are most likely not the good works that are being manifested through the, through the saving work of God. Because it's we are not an island, folks. We are not an island into of ourselves that simply get to say, well, I do all, all my good works just between me and God. See, they should edify others. Now again, where we get in trouble is when we begin to pick and choose what do I think is going to edify the brethren? Uh, Paul deals with this in 2 Corinthians 9. and begin, We'll begin there in verse number uh, 1. And he... Paul makes, he makes mention of people who had assisted him. And they had assisted him in many different ways. But if you uh, look at the first verse, he says, For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know the forwardness of your mind. Now, Paul is commending them for their zeal. He's commending them for their, uh, their readiness and their willingness. For which I boast of you to them of Macedonia that Achaea was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Now, this provoking here is not a negative provoking. We think about the word provoking and we think about picking on somebody to the point that you make them mad and they respond in kind. This is a positive provoking. That your zeal, Paul says, your zeal and your readiness and your willingness of mind to assist has provoked many others. It's edified them. And he goes on and he says, yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, ye may be ready, lest happily if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we that we say not ye should be ashamed in the same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before you unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully." Uh, The point here is Paul is really instructing them. uh, There was a a collection that was happening, and it was to help other believers. And he said, your zeal and your readiness to give to these works have edified the brethren. They have strengthened the brethren. This next one um, is one I don't think we think about, but it talks about adorning the profession of the gospel. Adorning the profession of the gospel. What, what do good works do? Uh, it actually makes the gospel more real. It makes the gospel real to even an unbeliever. Uh, Matthew 5.16 is one of the verses that is referenced uh, in this paragraph regarding this. Um, the, the old timers used to talk a lot about Adorning. They would not necessarily use the same phrase adorning the profession of the gospel, but they would use the biblical terminology adorning the gospel. The word adorn means to put on. It means to wear. It means to, to almost as a robe to have that gospel on. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, which is one of the footnoted verses, it says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Now notice their response when they see the good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. You see, these good works have a purpose. These good works uh, are are works that attract people to the very glory of God. The the great problem with a works-based salvation is that it attracts no glory to God. It attracts all glory to what man can do. When I, think, when I can claim or I claim that my good works save me, I'm, I'm robbing God of the glory that is alone due to him. Uh, a, a religion that's based upon good works is a travesty to a God, to, to the real God, because God only gets the glory for any of the good works that happen in our life. Uh, Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. Titus 2, verses 9 and 10. Of course, as Paul was writing to uh, Timothy and Titus, uh, there are some similarities in the admonitions that he gives. But Titus is, is a little bit more uh, towards the, uh, the demonstration of these works. In Titus 2, verse 9, "...exhort servants to be obedient unto their own masters, and to please them well in all things, not answering them." Answering again, Not purloining, but showing all good fidelity, that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Looking for that blessed hope, It's interesting to me that one of the passages that the confession writers used and and footnoted with this adoring of the gospel uh, is the very gospel itself, Uh, that it is God who has brought the grace to us, and that as a result, the the product is a people zealous of good works. And now this is, not a refer- this is not one that the, the confession writers uh, actually footnoted, but I came across this this week, and I, I thought it was fitting for this particular phrase, uh, John 14, uh, verses 10 through 15. Of course, John 14 is known uh, for being the passage that deals with uh, I go to prepare a place for you, and that, that's a great promise of God. But if you keep reading down in, in John 14... And you drop down to verse 10. We see, Believest thou thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me. He doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the very works sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. If ye love me, keep my commandments. Now we've got to keep in mind that because God creates these works in us, does not mean that we sit idly by and just say, God, okay, do the works. We are to be seeking certainly the opportunities to demonstrate these things right this isn't something we say okay if god's the one that does all the work and god is the one that does all the works through us and that those will be manifest because we are his workmanship that doesn't mean that we just sit idly by and we say okay god do your work we're still actively going all the way back to second peter he said add to your faith virtue add these things And so it's important that when we have adorned the gospel, uh, that we live out the profession of what the gospel is. The profession of the gospel is these good works are actually being manifested in us that show thankfulness, that strengthen our own assurance, they edify the brethren, and they adorn the profession of the gospel. And then notice this last one. Stop the mouths of the adversaries and glorify God. Imagine a true good work that is manifestation of what has taken place in us actually is a defense of the faith against those who oppose gospel truth. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. This is actually mentioned in both of those statements the mouth of adversaries and glorify God. So we'll read 1 Peter 2, verses 12 through 15. And you'll see both of these being demonstrated in what Peter was writing here with how these good works actually defend and stop the mouths of the adversaries. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God, that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men." As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. You notice that the response of people who are in Christ, that by your good works, by your good works, they will glorify God in the day of visitation. There are those who will oppose the gospel. There are those who will stand in direct opposition against the gospel. But even in our stance of good works, it shuts the mouths of the adversary. It gives them really no excuse as to what is happening and what is being said. Philippians chapter 1. Paul, of course, knew what it was to be a prisoner, and he knew what it was to be in prison for nothing more than preaching the gospel. And those who maybe oppose this view of these good works say, well, if these works were so great that they glorified God, why did they, show, why did they throw Paul in prison? But notice, notice what he says in verse 9 of the first chapter of Philippians. He said, and this I pray that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. There's probably not a single person who was a non-believer who looked at Paul and said, "Why he's sitting in prison, he was actually demonstrating the good works of God. Now that's something, if you put a sign-up sheet out in a church, hey, anybody want to be involved in a good work outreach? We're going to send you to prison. Nobody signs up for that. There's a big difference in going to minister at the local nursing home and going to minister saying, you're going to go spend 30 days in jail. The point is, is that we don't view that as a good work because it doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't connect in our rational human limited mind. Paul says, everything that's happened to me has fallen out with regard to a furtherance of the gospel. Some would say, well, that he sure didn't shut their mouths in that. Well, actually, if you keep reading on, he says, notice how, notice what Paul's prison experience, watch how this fills out almost all the things that he says. He's thankful that he's in prison. His imprisonment actually leads believers to manifest their own thankfulness strengthens their own assurance that if Paul is in prison, Paul is strengthening us, that he edifies the brethren. And that's what he's doing. He's not in prison saying, look, whatever you can do, after midnight tonight, I want you to get anything you can and come bust me out of prison. He never once asked for anyone to come get him out. But yet he says that these things have fallen out rather under the furtherance of the gospel so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. What he's saying is my bonds are a picture of good works to the adversaries who put me in here. It's being manifested to them that they have no excuse. And many of the brethren, watch this, and many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Instead of the brethren getting more afraid and saying, I don't want to go to prison, He said, you know what my bonds have actually done? They've actually encouraged and edified other people to be more bold. Confident by my bonds. Much more bold to speak the word without fear. There was truly a fear that they dealt with that, look, this is a fearful thing because to preach the gospel then was almost a certainty of imprisonment. Folks, I know things can get bad in our country, and I know things can get all out of whack and disjointed. But do you realize that what we're doing today in Paul's day most likely would have ended up in some sort of arrest and imprisonment, and we are here free? But what happens when the day when they start imprisoning preachers of the gospel? What happens when they start taking away the ability to even gather? There's no doubt that when Paul went to prison, many people said, oh, this, this gospel thing, this will just get you in trouble. And Paul says, no, I'm thankful God put me in prison because by my imprisonment, he has helped you. He's assured you. He's given you confidence that now you can speak with boldness. And I love what Paul says here because I wish, I wish the churches of today would get this concept. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Let me share a little open secret with you. Paul said there are people out there that are not even preaching this for the right reason, are not preaching it for the right motives, but the word of God will not be stopped. And he said, if, even if they're doing it for the wrong motives and the wrong reasons, I rejoice that Christ is being preached. Do you know that even the wicked of this world are carrying out the plan and the purposes and the sovereignty of God. So when you guys and I look out on the horizon and we say, this wickedness, that can't be from God. If we believe that God is sovereign, God is even using wicked kings, wicked rulers, and even wicked judgments against his people in order to further his plan. See, we are so compartmentalized that we say, well, this is a good work, this isn't a good work this qualifies as a good work, this isn't a good work. We try to define degrees of good works by saying, well, here's what a real good work looks like. What these these confession writers were taking from the scripture was saying, these good works are not something you go from place to place trying to figure out what's a good work. They are the natural manifestation, the evidence that you are a child of God. It's good works created by God in Abraham that led Abraham to take his son, his only son, up to Mount Moriah and and go as far as raising the knife. It's the good works of God being manifested in Paul that allowed him to sit in prison and to preach boldly. Paul did not pull him up by his sandals. He didn't pull himself up and say, I'm going to stand in defense of the gospel. you know why he stood in defense? Because that was the good work being created in him by the power of God. That's why we're gonna find out. It may not, for the older adults in the room and the middle-aged adults in this room, it may not be during our generation, but we're gonna find out where real faith truly resides. There's gonna come a day when there is gonna be a great purging of the churches all over this world where everybody is gonna be tested and only the real faithful who are in Christ are gonna be standing. Don't be shocked. Don't be shocked if half of what people who call themselves churchgoers, when this happens, flee like people on a sinking ship. Because anybody can make a profession of faith. I can give an altar call and I can say, come and make a profession of faith. I have not given you the true gospel. I have simply given you something that is only going to stand on its own merits and say, I made a profession of faith, so I must be okay. And the question really is this morning, is your, the nature of good works are so that it will demonstrate itself in your life. If I have a profession of faith without works, my faith is dead. If all I do is say what I am, but I never give evidence of it, then there is a problem. So next week, what we're going to do is we're going to deal with the, the last phrase of the whose workmanship they are, creating Christ Jesus thereunto, that having their, their fruit unto holiness, they may have the end eternal life. So we'll deal with uh, that phrase. I went way over this morning, so let's go ahead and pray. And um, so save any questions that you have for next week. I'm going to have a couple questions that I, didn't, I don't want to ask today because we don't have all that we need for this morning, okay? So let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time in your word. And Lord, we have certainly covered a lot of ground this morning, and Lord, we pray that it has been uh, given properly. Uh, Lord, that as the Spirit gives us discernment and understanding uh, that we would be brought to a place of rejoicing, uh, that we would rejoice in our salvation, Uh, but that, Lord, we would also have a certainty Uh, we would be assured that we are uh, in the family of God. Uh, Lord, I do pray that you would be with us now in a few moments as we uh, go into corporate worship together. Uh, Lord, we pray for those that are already here. Uh, We pray for the the needs that they have. We pray for those that'll be joining us. And Father, we just pray that today will be to the glory and honor of your son and that we will lift up the name of Christ high and we would do it uh, boldly and without any shame. And it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen. All right. Thank you.